On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? It's 112 degrees out today, Eric. So, <laughs> so Phoenix in July is still a great place to be, but it's a, it's a little toasty out today. So I'm, I'm good, but very hot. Uh, so that's breakfast on the sidewalk. Literally, you could uh, cook some eggs on there. And, and yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't for the ants in the dirt, it'd be just fine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's hot. Speaking of hot, you've got a guest on the show and you guys are going to have a very hot conversation uh, because this is an incredibly important topic. And so who'd you bring on the show? What David Blackman on, and uh, this this guy's the real deal. He's been in the oil and gas business for about 40 years now, uh, last 23 of which he's been in the public policy arena pretty heavily. And uh, he knows, put it this way, he knows more about oil and gas and energy and all the things we need to drive this economy for sure than I do and probably more than most. And this is, I think, such a critical topic of conversation right now. I really wanted to bring him on and, and have a good conversation with him about everything that's happening uh, with oil and gas and energy overall in the country right now. All right. Sounds good. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And David, thank you so much for, for, uh, for joining me today. And you want to start by being, giving me a little bit of a background in terms of how you got in this business and particularly the public policy space. How did you get into public policy? Sure. Uh, well, that, that's uh, interesting. I had uh, a very strange career pro- progression. I, uh, I'm an accountant by degree, have a, a degree in accounting. And uh, spent the first 10 or 12 years of my career in the accounting space at various uh, oil and gas companies. Um, And then in the 90s, I just kind of uh, was with a company called Burlington Resources, uh, whose management uh, allowed employees to really kind of define their own roles. And I just gradually drifted over into the public policy arena. I'd always been active and interested in politics. And... uh, yeah, it worked out really well. 25 years now in the public policy space, and uh, it's been a fascinating education, I have to tell you, uh, analyzing and, and seeing how public policy decisions made at all levels of government impact uh, our energy industry's ability to satisfy demand in this country and internationally. Now, you know, I'll start with this. I think that the things that every country needs to have to be successful. You've got to have access to, to energy and preferably energy that's, that's easy to get to and is relatively cheap. You need that energy to provide food to the people in the country. And you also need that energy to provide defense for the country. I mean, I think the largest uh, energy user in the entire world, if I'm right about this, is probably the Pentagon in terms of running our military. If you look at the quality of life and the standard of living increase that we've had over the last hundred years or so, since fossil fuels have been a big part of obviously what's made our economy go, why do people hate fossil fuels so much? Well, uh, you, you know, that's a really great question. You're right. I mean, uh, fossil fuel energy first with coal, but uh, then more importantly, with the advent of the oil era in the late 1800s, has enabled society to progress as it has into our modern way of life. It freed us up from having to transport goods on waterways 
rivers, you know, on boats uh, and, and allowed us to become a more mobile society. And, you know, I, the reason I think most people hate uh, oil and gas in particular and coal uh, has a lot to do with uh, the messages that they are bombarded with every day in our news media, uh, in our entertainment industry, and by uh, many of our public officials. A lot of that information is false, outright false. A lot of it is simply incorrect. Uh, a lot of it's accurate, too. And, you know, the, the industry itself has, has been very inept at defending itself, uh, really disinterested in defending itself for a variety of reasons. And, and so you've just had a monopoly uh, in the dissemination of news of, uh, being, being put out basically by people who oppose the industry and uh, an education system that doesn't offer really accurate information uh, to students at any level about how important energy is to their lives. And so you end up with a society that has to have energy, that runs on energy, can't live without energy, that hates energy. And um, that's a really bad place to be in this modern world. You know, I'll tell you one of the things that concerns me is if you look at where does the world get its energy, uh, 85% almost of global energy is coming from fossil fuels. Oil is about 33% of that, coal is 27%, uh, natural gas is about 24, 25% of that. And that hasn't changed much in the last you know, 15 years or so. If you go back to those numbers in, in 2005, it was only about 1% less for renewables. And if you look at solar and wind, that's still, you would know this better than me, but that's still maybe 4% of the global energy supply. Yeah. And so when I hear um, Governor Kathy Hochul in New York recently saying that the state was going to be 70% renewable <laughs> by 2030, Okay, that's, this is less than eight years away. We've spent billions and billions of dollars. We all want clean water, clean air, clean land. I don't think anyone disagrees on that. But you also have to live in Realville. You have to accept reality, at least right now, as it is. If we've spent now billions of dollars in the last 15 years, and we've gotten incrementally maybe 1%, 2% more in some of these renewables, is there any possible way that you see that a state like New York can possibly be 70% renewable by 2030? No, no, it's not physically possible for really, I mean, I, I suppose potentially Rhode Island could get there because it's so tiny, has such a small population. A state like Wyoming might be able to achieve that uh, if it wanted to because it has the lowest population in the United States. A state like New York uh, with, what, 17 to 20 million people living in it now in a pretty compact geographical area. Unless Governor Hochul wants her citizens to go back to a subsistence level of living, then no, it's not really possible. The, the Really, just physics alone would tell you, that if you understand thermodynamics and energy density, uh, it's simply not possible for wind and solar to play the role that politicians like Governor Hochul and, and uh you know, the president of the United States are pretending it can. And I think they know better, but it's such a, an effective virtue signal to be delivering from a political standpoint. It polls well. Uh, these politicians are more interested in winning their next re-election campaign than they are in solving problems and, and, and worrying about the security of the American people. You, know, you mentioned something very interesting that for a state like New York, where I lived for a long time. I was born in New Jersey. I had to go to undergrad out in Colorado, but 
I lived in New York City from 1996 to about 2007. And one of the things that um, I think is unique, if you look at the coastal population areas, and I've got, I loved living in New York, I got a lot of good friends there, but you, you don't recognize that things are very different around the rest of the country. And even my life in Phoenix right now, I drive about two and a half, three miles a day. I drop my son off at school every morning. I come here in the office, which is reasonably close to my home. I might fill up my gas tank every you know, three weeks or so. The so it's easy for me to say, well, you know, it's six, seven dollar gasoline doesn't impact me that much because quite frankly, it doesn't. I don't drive enough for it to impact me. But what about the farmer that's in Nebraska or the guy that's commuting in his F-150 out in Texas that's commuting 50, 60 miles a day? You know, suddenly now he's got to choose between getting himself to work and putting food on the table. And so what I guess what I'm getting at with this is why isn't the oil and gas business doing a better job? You've got marketing on one side toward the green agenda. You've got obviously the reality of the world that we live in. Realville says you need abundant and relatively inexpensive energy and everyone, everyone benefits by that. Why isn't the oil and gas business done a better job at showing what a positive impact they have had on our, on our country in the last you know, hundred years, in the world in the last hundred years? It's a fascinating thing to me, and I worked directly with five different CEOs uh, over the last 25 years of my career. And, uh, you know, the, these are, with one exception, uh, one was a finance guy who just thought he was smarter than everybody else. The other four were petroleum engineers and, and geologists. And these are scientists who, who wake up every morning thinking about you know, how are they going to find more oil? How are they going to find more natural gas? Where their next wells are going to be drilled? What the budget looks like for this quarter? They, they to them, public relations is a nuisance. It's overhead. It's something they don't want to have to deal with. And, and so they don't. And unfortunately, in pretty much any oil company you can name, public relations, government affairs, those kinds of professions within their organizations are not what they call core competencies. They're not the central part of the business. And so they, they are not what the management team focuses on within these big corporations. Uh, private companies, probably most of them don't even have government affairs or public relations people. And it's just not what a scientist wants to think about every day. I understand that. And I spent, beat my head against the wall for a long time trying to get these incredibly intelligent men and women to, to think about, think more about this kind of thing, become more involved. And I think finally, you know, now that I'm kind of out of the industry and writing about it instead of doing it, you know, there is now a, a younger group of CEOs and senior executives who are far more engaged on trying to get the message out and get real information out into the public space and that's a great thing. I'm just afraid it's it may be just too little too late, but at least that particular tide is finally beginning to turn in the industry. Now, how much of the current problems that we have in, in the energy markets right now in the form of obviously high oil prices that we've got happening, gasoline prices, everything that we're dealing with, how much of that is due towards policy decisions that were made at the onset of COVID, uh, Russia, Ukraine? or just the current environment with the current administration? Because if I am a business owner of any kind and I'm being told work harder, do more of this, 
but in five years, we want to shut you down. Why would I invest? Why would I invest anything today? Oh, exactly. That's exactly it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, a piece for Forbes right now that's going to, the theme is going to be the fact that we are in the midst right now of a, an energy crisis, a global energy crisis that is 100% caused by, by bad energy policy decisions. Yes, COVID had an impact. The Russia, Russia's war in Ukraine has had an impact. But really, this is the culmination of really 20 to 25 years of energy policy and climate policy that uh, has been motivated by climate change politics and climate change propaganda. And, you know, you can argue that climate change is, is a life-threatening crisis. It's what we have to deal with. I don't really care. I'm agnostic on all of that. What I will tell you is that what we're doing right now isn't going to in any way help with climate change. It's going to make a rounding errors difference in any, even the UN's own prognostications indicate that, that even meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Accord would in the end result in maybe two one hundredths of one degree of mitigated warming over a hundred years, okay? So what we're doing is not going to prevent climate change. What we're doing, though, is spending trillions of dollars, as you mentioned earlier, subsidizing two industries, two rent-seeking industries, wind and solar in the power generation sector, and one rent-seeking industry, electric vehicles in the transportation sector, in a vain attempt, an impossible attempt, to displace fossil fuels with those three technologies. It's not going to work. It's going to bankrupt the global economy. It's already well along the way to doing that. And unfortunately, it's become such a matter of almost religious fervor and faith among the proponents of these three rent-seeking industries that it, it is, you know, when you really analyze how can we turn that around, it almost feels impossible at this point. You know, and one of the things you mentioned in terms of what the what the difference might be in terms of CO two levels. When I hear that, I mean, one big volcanic eruption is basically belching out more than that sure. in, in a in a year. You know, so so there's there's again the, the difference is minimal. And I think you know, and I, I really try to avoid the politics, obviously, because I work with people across the political spectrum. Sure. However, when I see when I see something that to me seems so basic, and yet people aren't getting it. I, I get very frustrated with it. I mean, I, I, I basically, I try, again, I try to live in reality and reality means that there's a flip side to everything. I say that in the investment side, there's, there's a nice shiny, pretty side that I can show you. And I flip the coin over and there's, there's, there's the drawbacks. There's the, there's the negatives to it. And I look at energy with that. But what, what is concerning me right now is that you've got for a civilization and an economy to thrive. Again, I come back to the fact you have to have energy yeah. and we've got, We've got political leaders that have, they've got something that you and I don't have. They've got a monopoly on the force of law that can impose these things regardless of the consequences. And I think we're having this discussion at a really interesting time looking at what's happened now in Sri Lanka, where you look at the ESG crowd has come in and all of a sudden they banned chemical fertilizers. Well, guess what? You know, Surprise, surprise, crop yields went down and the food <laughs> prices went up 80%. And now the presidential palace or, or the, uh, the leadership there, 
that's been stormed and they're swimming in their swimming pools. And so I think that the issue is, is you can very easily destabilize a population when it becomes too expensive to eat and when you can't fuel, you know, get, have the energy that you need to turn the lights on. And you're seeing these policies that are really being pushed, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And what do you think is the genesis of that? Where is this something that you and I can, can talk about without even being, for my case, you're very versed in it, but in my case, not even being that versed in it, but you see there's negative consequences to when you restrict something that, that is so important. But why are we getting this push now towards this elimination of very publicly saying they want to eliminate fossil fuels? I mean, what yeah. you're seeing with this administration shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that listens to Joe Biden campaign all through 2020. He, he said multiple times he wants to eliminate the fossil fuel industry. But where is this push coming from and why do you believe it's happening? Well, a, a big part of the push is coming from the United Nations. Uh, uh, some of it comes from the World Economic Forum. All these international forums uh, discuss these issues, uh, you know, at, at a variety of conferences every year. We had the COP26 conference last year, and, and it's uh, these are all g- gatherings of the global elites, they, they call themselves, uh, the, the leaders in all these countries. And they've all been, you know, uh, educated into this uh, climate change science uh, and, and really just pretty much all of them believe in it. I mean, I, I don't think they are disingenuous in their belief in what the, the climate change lobby is telling them. Uh, and so they, they act on, on those beliefs and do it in concert with other countries. You talk about Sri Lanka, which is the, just the greatest example. You're absolutely right. What they did with fertilizers last year uh, literally is placing half their population in danger of starvation. And the Netherlands, the government of the Netherlands, just enacted the exact same policy. Right. I mean, yeah. they're going to go down exactly the same road. And the Netherlands is the biggest exporter of meat uh, in Europe. It's the second biggest ex- exporter of, of crops in Europe to, fe- to help feed the world. And, and, you know, we now have close to a billion people on the face of the earth who are on the brink of famine uh, because of these crazy, I mean, crazy decisions that are being made. We have the major energy crisis in Europe is just another prime example. Uh, Germany and other countries decided to make their power grids, you know, over-reliant on intermittent energy, wind power mainly, but also solar. The wind stopped blowing last summer, and they've been in this mad scramble now to reactivate all their coal-fired power plants and natural gas power plants that they thought they could just willy-nilly retire. And you have a lot of people in Europe now facing potential uh, deadly freezing temperatures without the ability to heat their homes this coming winter as a result of those energy decisions. So what's motivating it? I think climate change theory is motivating it. Uh, I think that's the big motivator behind it. And it's also, you know, it's, it's, a, a, it's a, an excuse in the political world to push socialist solutions. Every solution, every government policy you see proposed to fight climate change is socialist in nature. And it's government control, heavy handed government control of the economy and nature. 
And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but every time I see the, the government trying to intercede into markets and pick winners and losers in the marketplace, not just related to energy, but any, any other part of the business world you can name, all they do is mess things up. It always creates displacement and, and hardships on the population. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what goes through Joe Biden's mind, but I want to believe that uh, he really believes all this stuff uh, and is acting out of those beliefs. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how far these issues, these, these issues are able to continually, I guess, get traction in this country. You know, speaking about Russia, Ukraine. So we're in a very fortunate position in the United States where I believe we have the largest proven reserves in the world. Um, everyone thinks of the Saudis. They think of the Middle East when they think about the large oil producers. But Russia is really number two. I mean, they're, they're a monster yeah. just like we are. Um, one of the things that has surprised me is, so you've got now this conflict simmering over in Russia, Ukraine. Putin is selling as much, if not more oil today than he was at the start of the war. It's, it's now it's going to India and China as opposed to heading over to, to Western Europe. Right. Um, the ruble, which collapsed initially in the early days of the war, is now trading. The dollar has been very strong this year, but the ruble has actually been one of the strongest currencies internationally because now rather than being paid in US dollars, they're demanding payment in ruble. If if this war effort is important enough for us to send $50, $60 billion over there, what do you think, knowing the energy markets like you do, that perhaps if you want to cripple the Russian war machine, a better way to do it would be to very aggressively do everything possible to lower the price of the good that he is basically yeah. funding his war machine with? Would that make sense or am I off base there? Oh, it totally makes sense. It's just such a difficult task uh, to achieve that. You know, uh, the, the president and, and some of the other G7 leaders uh, developed a scheme to try to place a price cap on exports of Russian oil. And, uh, you know, I mean, it makes sense when you think about that. Uh, that's what you would want to do. But uh, in order to do it and to enforce such a cap, you're going to have to have the cooperation of, of India, which you mentioned, which has become a big customer of Russia. Who else is a customer of Russian oil exports? China. Uh, Brazil just announced yesterday that they're interested in buying all the diesel and fertilizers, which are made from natural gas from Russia, that they can buy at market prices. And, and these BRICS countries... And I think what we're seeing as a big result of all this, this uh, effort to enforce sanctions on Putin is the rise of what we call the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. That group of countries is really beginning to exercise a lot of geopolitical leverage now. And uh, they're not, those countries are really not interested in trying to disadvantage Putin. And together, those countries are a very strong economic force globally. So it, it would make sense to do that. It's just an incredibly difficult thing to, to try to implement and enforce. So let's talk about policy here in the U.S. Uh, I want to talk about, let's talk about refining capacity first. Um, I believe the last new refinery, refinery we built in this country was 1979. Yeah. Am I, am I right on that? 78. I think late 1978 was the last 
uh, greenfield refinery that was completed. Okay. Now, have there? I've also heard that there has been uh, different you know, different initiatives in the last year or two that have converted a lot of our existing refining capacity towards blending biofuels and some of these other things that's yep. taken a couple million bar- a couple million either barrels or gallons i don't i don't know the barrels, answer to that barrels per day yeah. barrels per day tell me a little bit more about how cuz i think that one of the things that that i think my listeners would like to understand and i would certainly like to understand is the infrastructure that is necessary to take a barrel of crude oil and turn it into the energy sources that you need this is not this is a big giant ship here you can't you can't make a 180 degree turn it takes a long time to ramp up capacity it takes a long time to create new capacity if you've transitioned to different kinds of refining it takes a long time to transition back can you can you tell me what what a policy decision like um you know, blending biofuels and some of these other things what does that do to refining capacity and how and how quickly can that be changed well, it, it diminishes refining capacity, as you just said. Uh, and, and of course, biofuels in this country are, are made from corn, which is the least efficient crop possible for turning into energy. Uh, many people believe you actually consume more energy than you create by trying to make ethanol out of corn. But it's mandated by the EPA, EPA and subsidized by the federal government. It's been a boon to corn farmers, and so the farm lobby loves it. Uh, and it has a lot of political power on Capitol Hill and a lot of politicians in its pocket. And so this, this really irrational energy policy that provides virtually no environmental benefit whatsoever uh, has continued not just to exist, but to expand. Here we are in the midst of a global food crisis that's really going to cause a lot of starvation in the third world later this year. And Joe Biden, uh, through an executive order, decided to expand it, to expand the ability and requirements and mandates for refiners to blend more biofuels into their gasoline this summer than you normally would, which takes a lot of food out of the food chain. What is the hypothetical? I've never understood what the hypothetical benefits of um, using using bio, you know, corn and, and other crops of blending that into our existence. What's what's right. the supposed benefit of that? Well, the supposed benefit is that it burns cleaner than regular gasoline and creates fewer emissions, which it does. Okay, it does when you burn it, and if you don't consider the full life cycle of of all the energy you consume and the emissions you cause in the making of it, then you can say there's an environmental benefit, right? But but you have to consider the whole chain, you know, cradle to grave emissions. And when you do that, the environmental benefit disappears. So it's this this shell game policy (laughs) that uh, is, is entirely a political construct. And Unfortunately, because of the way our presidential politics are structured, the biggest corn farming state in the country, Iowa, is the first uh, event every four years in picking a president, the Iowa caucuses. And so, you know, um, you just have this situation where it's become politically impossible for any president who wants to get reelected or any candidate who wants to get elected to attack that policy. And, it, and that just has had the effect of giving it a life it doesn't deserve. And now 
from a farmer's perspective, you have all these corn farmers uh, all across the country who are now wholly dependent on that subsidy for their livelihoods, okay? So you, you just have thousands and thousands of American farmers who are completely addicted to this subsidy and would be displaced if you rescinded it. And so there's that political pressure too. But, but to say there's a real envir environmental benefit from biofuels in this country is really not being exactly honest. I'll put it that way. So when you're talking about the life cycle, obviously, if they're, if they're looking at biofuels that, clean, that burn cleaner, yes. but you've still got to, you've got to harvest it, you've got to move it, you've sure. got to refine it, you've yeah. got all the stages along the way. I mean, I'm assuming that's what you're talking about, correct? Yeah, it takes an incredible amount of energy uh, to, to make to turn corn into biofuels. And part of it is because, you know, you know when you eat corn, the kernel inside the, the, the shell around the kernel is what provides the nutrient. Well, it's that cover layer around the kernel that is so difficult to burn off and requires you to, to use so much energy to convert it to a biofuel. Uh, in other countries like Brazil, they use sugarcane, which is a far more efficient crop to use. Uh, but doesn't isn't as widely grown in the United States. And so 20 years ago in the Bush administration, they made the decision to subsidize corn. And uh, it's just this, um, it's a bad model that doesn't really provide a benefit, but it is what it is at this point. So prior to the Bush administration, I'm, I'm assuming we were talking Bush Jr. Yes. There, was, there was not government subsidies for corn. Not, for not until I think 2004, was when the program was created, 2003, 2004, which was during his first term. Yes. Interesting. Now, in and terms he of, supported it. Yeah, well, he, he, he supported a lot of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, this is not a partisan issue, folks. Yeah. This is a totally bipartisan deal. Now, how hard is it to turn that refining capacity? How, how, how hard is it? Give me an idea from a permitting process oh. to retooling refineries. I, let's say I, I look and I say, wait, you know, look at these giant margins. I, I don't know what the margins are, refiners. I probably should, but I don't. Look at these huge margins. I want to get into this business. I'm going to, I'm going to start up in a refinery on the Gulf Coast there. How hard is it to do that? Well, it's impossible. I mean, regulatorily, it's, it's essentially impossible. It, the permitting uh, costs alone would take the better part of a decade to get it done, um, maybe even longer than that. And then once you get your permits in place, which, you know, have to do with air emissions and any kind of water impacts you might have and the land siting. And there's just this array of federal permits and state permits you would have to qualify for and acquire. Uh, then you'd have to find the financing for it and building a new, a substantially large new refinery would, you know, be billions and billions of dollars, 10 billion probably in excess of that. You'd have to find financing for that. Then you'd have to be able to source all the steel you need because if you've ever been close to a refining operation, it's all made out of steel um, and, and it requires an incredible amount of it, which steel is very expensive and, and very scarce right now. So you're, you're looking at 10 to 15 years from the time you, you know, have a plan in place to the time you produce your first gasoline and in an environment where the federal government, the Secretary of Energy just three weeks ago said, 
she wants them all to be shut down in 10 years anyway. So who would so why be would you do it? crazy enough to do that? I mean, you'd have to be insane. So let's talk about moving this stuff around. Obviously, Keystone Pipeline, I believe on, on day one of Biden's administration, he killed that. Yeah. Does And I've, I've heard arguments on both sides where you know, killing a pipeline or, or shutting down pipelines has no impact on uh, fuel costs, energy costs in this country. <laughs> is, is that, tell me, tell me what this really looks like in real world. Well, I, so look, if you can't get the product to market, uh, yeah, it's going to become scarce and prices are going to go up. This is, this is like economics 101. It's the second day of class. You learn this, right? Um, so obviously, if we can't build pipelines, which is the safest and cleanest and most environmentally sensitive way to transport both oil and natural gas, uh, to get the oil and get natural gas to the refineries or, or to the processing plants or to the LNG export facilities, well, then those products are going to become scarce and more expensive. Uh, so th- that's just an absurd argument. It's absurd on its face, but you hear it all the time. Um, yeah, and we need a lot more pipelines. I, I just wrote a piece in Forbes yesterday uh, about uh, protests against the pipeline here in Texas to bring natural gas from the Permian Basin, which is the second largest natural gas field in the United States, in addition to being the largest oil field, from you know West Texas over to Houston, where it can be processed and loaded up onto tankers and shipped over to Europe as LNG. Well, you know, the gas is in the ground. We can only produce the gas where it's in the ground. And that, that's out in West Texas, and that's 500 miles from Houston. And the only way to get it to Houston or to Corpus Christi, if you want to go there, is through a pipeline. And we don't have enough pipelines right now to carry enough gas. And uh, out of either the Permian or the Marcellus shale, which is the biggest shale basin in the country. And so we are, in, you know, creating a situation where natural gas is becoming scarce as well as oil. And that's why the natural gas price has doubled this year and will continue to rise. Let's talk about fracking. Obviously there was a, there's a a lot of, as as there is with all this stuff involving fossil fuels and energy, a lot of controversy about fracking. There was, I believe this was maybe 10 years or so ago. There was a documentary Gasland that came out. Um, yes, I remember it well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. People turn on their faucets, and flames are shooting out, and everything else. It, it, what What is the risk? And let, let's let's we'll first talk about some of the negatives. And I, I think, and again, sure. not being in the business, I could be very wrong with this. But if you look at this, the last big oil price spike that we had was probably around like 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. And all of a sudden, you had uh, you know up at the Bakken up north came online, and all of a sudden you had this massive revolution in terms of fracking. And I think you you had a more accommodative administration also that came in, but we saw right. prices went down. But you hear a lot of real pushback against fracking, saying you're poisoning the earth. What are they injecting? What are these chemicals being injected into the earth? First, let's start with the negatives. Where are they right? Before we talk about well, there are uh, chemicals in, in fracking. Um, uh, solutions, you know, the fluids that go into the well to, to break up the rock, you inject that fluid, which is probably 98% water, but you also have chemicals and sand that are in it that, you know, you inject in high pressure to break up the rock. And so the risk is that, that those chemicals come back up the hole and somehow pollute the water table. Um, 
properly drilled and constructed well has either three or four or five different layers of steel casing to protect various watersheds that are, you know, you would encounter on the way down to the oil producing rock. Uh, so if the well's constructed properly, that's not going to happen. Now, occasionally you do have flaws in the well construction, though, or in the cement job that goes around the pipe can be faulty. And so there is that risk, and no one should pretend there isn't that risk. Uh, also, no one should pretend that that hydraulic fracturing hasn't caused earthquakes, very low-level earthquakes, but in Oklahoma and Texas, it's been a consistent issue for 15 years now. And, uh, and, you know, regulators have finally gotten their arms around those issues pretty well. But we still see that popping up from time to time. So it's, it's you know, it's wrong for people in the industry to claim everything's perfectly safe. There's no risks. It's an extractive industry. There are risks. There are going to be impacts. And you have to be upfront and honest with people about that. And a lot of companies in the industry were not upfront and honest at the, particularly in the early days of the shale revolution and spread a lot of propaganda around that wasn't true. And it really did tremendous amount of damage to the industry's reputation. And it enabled filmmaker like Josh Fox to, to do Gasland with that image of the guy lighting his water faucet on fire and have that be blamed on all companies when the truth was that that guy lighting his faucet on fire could have done it 50 years ago too, because the water that that house was consuming comes from the top of a coal seam where, you know, methane gas leaches out of the coal into the water and comes up the water pipe and has done forever. But because the industry was so inept and often dishonest in its communications during that time, uh, a guy like Josh Fox could could have a level of credibility that he didn't really deserve. And, and that was the industry's fault as much as anything else. Now, let's talk about something now a little closer, I guess, my world. Um, ESG, uh, environment, social governance standards that are being- My favorite topic, yeah. All right, let's dig into it. Because that is a big, that is a big <clears throat> deal in my world where you've got really yeah. large companies that speak on behalf of a lot of shareholders. I mean, if you look at Vanguard, for example- uh, BlackRock, for example, um, they have enormous power in dealing with companies because everyone that owns the S&P 500 mutual fund or exchange traded fund, in many cases, it's a Vanguard fund, it's a BlackRock fund. And they have, they have this, this voting power because they represent, uh, theoretically anyway, they represent the shareholders. Right. What, what, what's happening, what's happening in, in the energy world among publicly traded companies in terms of having to comply with these, these ESG standards and how big of a deal is it? Oh, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Um, and it gets, uh, becomes a bigger deal every year. Um, so the ESG thing started in 2007. I'll never forget when the company I was at got our first letter from, from an ESG investor group that year. Uh, <laughs> I was invited into the board meeting and asked, you know, what I thought, because I was their director of government affairs at the time. And, you know, they asked me what I thought we should do with a letter. And, and it was an investor that owned about a 2% stake in the company stock. And I, you know, I told them, look, uh, you can do what these people are demanding this year. And next year, you're going to get a letter from them 
that's going to demand more. And it's going to be like that every year from now on. And so I told him my suggestion was you should throw that letter in the trash can and immediately get on the phone with all your fellow CEOs and vice presidents in the industry and urge them to do the same thing. Because if you start complying with this stuff, it's going to create a monster. And that's what's happened. Um, I don't know. You may have had that monster created anyway, but because the corporate boardrooms were so intimidated uh, by the whole environmental construct and climate change construct, they all decided to cooperate. And so they have been as responsible as anyone else for, for enabling groups like Black, BlackRock and Vanguard to become so powerful. And it's been a major reason why uh, we're in the energy fix we're in right now. We've had eight years of massive underinvestment in the finding of new oil and gas reserves now, largely because these firms have been so successful in denying capital access to oil and gas companies. And uh, we have about, well, uh, Reistat Energy last year estimated that the level of underinvestment in finding of new reserves has amounted to about half a trillion dollars since 2014. And, you know, assuming that's accurate, you would have to have overinvestment by that amount in the years to come to make up for that, to offset it and get back to an adequately supplied market because demand is not going down like all the environmentalists promised it would. It's going up. So ESG has been an incredibly destructive uh, force in the energy world for 15 years now. And it's lost a little bit of its influence this year because of the energy crisis. But I suspect that uh, because boardrooms and politicians remain so intimidated by their tactics that uh, it will, that uh, part of the business world will, you know, recover in the years to come and be as powerful or even more powerful uh, very soon. So it's, it's here to stay. But you talk about companies because of because of these uh, ESG standards having lack of access to capital, they can still float shares on in publicly traded mm -hmm. companies. Anyway, can still float shares. They can raise money that way. Yeah. Are there banks and lending institutions that are just flat out not entering into that space because of the oh, concern? Yes. Okay, absolutely, and it's because of the ESG uh, paradigm now. Uh, a lot of big insurance companies now are beginning to back away from offering insurance for oil and gas projects now. And so it's permeating every part of the business world as well as the political realm. And it's just going to, I mean, I, I, I think unless, unless policymakers become willing to curtail their ability to force companies to do these things, uh, it's just going to create a permanent energy crisis and, and that's going to be a huge problem for, for our society in the future. Uh, and then, of course, you have the SEC now about to uh, propose this, uh, this rule on uh, ESG and closure, uh, disclosures, which the SEC probably doesn't have constitutional or legal authority to do. But that's something that companies will be forced to comply with while the cases are going through the courts and it'll take years to resolve. So. Um, it's it's really a pernicious thing, David. I, I could sit here and talk to you for another two or three hours. Um, 
let's end though on something positive <laughs> <Let's>, because because <laughs> you know it's a tough conversation and and i know i come across anyway to people that i speak with as an apologist for the oil and gas business that's not because i particularly like the oil and gas business but i i do recognize that nothing in this world is free there's an economic cost and benefit to absolutely everything, whether it's an yeah. investment, whether it's what you do with your time. There, there, there is always a pro and a con to pretty much everything that we're doing. And I look at fossil fuels, and I've been to 56 countries. I've seen a big swath of the planet. Countries that have access to readily available, cheap, inexpensive sources of fuel that also it, it, it trickles down to, to food and it trickles down to everything else. They are stronger, better countries in many, in most cases. Right. And it concerns me when I see um, a country like ours has been absolutely blessed in so many ways from a natural resource standpoint, not be able to access those things. And, and, that's, and that's why if I sound like I'm an apologist for the industry, yeah, maybe I am because I also recognize that, that in, in the reality that we live in, despite the, despite the efforts that we have to try to have this more green grid, which someday I think will happen. I think that you know pro progress marches on. People find more efficient ways to do things. There was a time where they burned every forest down in Europe to get fuel, and then they <laughs> right. have giant you know holes in the ground to get coal, and then all of a sudden this thing oil came along, and that was even better. And there will be whether it's fission or whether it's solar or what, whatever something will come next, and we'll look in the rearview mirror of humanity, and fossil fuels will be a thing that we did way back when. But we're not there right now. And what concerns me is when you're when you're slowing down these economic wheels, which are vitally important because we live on an economic planet. People, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy food, you want the food to be there and they want to get paid. And all this demands that, that, that we can move things, we can grow things, we can do all these things efficiently. Give me, as we close this out, a bright spot <laughs> that you see on the horizon for us potentially getting out of this five, six dollar. I was recently in California, I paid seven something for a gallon of gas. Um, what's, what's the, is there an optimistic view here we can close out with? Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, and I'm an optimist by nature. I want I people to understand that. I don't, I I don't like well. uh, focusing on bad news. Uh, but we're, I think we're headed into a lower gas price paradigm here soon because we're going to have a recession. Everyone now, by the way. Yeah, and I think yeah. we probably are. And so that's, if you want to call that a bright spot, that's that's what's going to cause lower gasoline prices. It's what will kill demand for oil temporarily and allow the markets to rebalance because we have a severely undersupplied crude oil market and that's driving the gas prices. So if we have a recession, that will rebalance the crude oil markets and gas prices will come back down, but we'll be in a recession. So, um, and then when we come out of the recession, we're going to have an undersupplied market again because of lack of investment in finding more oil. So the, the moral of this story is uh, if you want anything to change, you're going to have to change your voting patterns, put different people in office. Uh, be careful about uh, understanding what the candidates stand for that you're voting on. And, and that's the only way any of this is really going to change because uh, the Biden administration is not going to change anything and what that they're doing. And, and uh, so, so we're kind of there for, for the next several years. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, if there's, uh, if there's a bad enough energy crisis, hopefully, uh, the globalist uh, uh, leaders, the elites, 
will take a step back and reevaluate what they've been doing for the last 20 years. We can always hope that will happen. We can hope that would happen. And Dave, and, and I'll, I'll leave you with this because you do have the ear of a lot of big CEOs. I should have really mentioned in my intro in the beginning. I mean, you're a contributor to Forbes. You are very plugged in here. It's, it's been a great privilege for me to have you on to talk about this stuff. But you've got these guys' ears. And they've got a, they have a product that the world needs. They have a product that's absolutely been demonized. They have a product where there's, there's negatives and, and there's positives like everything else. But I do think that they can do a far better job of letting the American people know how much of this life that we have around us is, is benefited by the product that they are delivering to society. I mean, I look, I look out in the world and I say this a lot, so it's a line I've used over and over again. You know, having seen as much of the world as I have, this country is an absolute miracle. I mean, the world, the world does not live like this. This country, and I believe this at the core of my being, as Eric will attest to, this, this country is a gift to the world. One of the reasons we have been a gift to the world is because we've been able to innovate, grow, expand in absolutely miraculous ways. A big part of that has been because it takes energy to do all this stuff. And there are negatives, like there are with everything. But at the same point, there's, like you said in the beginning, there's been zero effort by the industry to say, hey, guys and, and ladies and everybody on, in this country, look around. Here's, here are the benefits to what we're doing. You know, if, you're, if your child was prematurely born and was in neonatal care, that plastic that they recover by and the medical supplies to keep you safe, that, that's oil and gas. You drove out to go see your, um, your family over the 4th of July weekend, that's oil and gas. The avocados that arrived on your doorstep was flown here on an airplane or trucked in using <laughs> diesel or kerosene. I mean, all this, it all comes back to energy. And we've got to get out of this this fantasy land where we can just, you know, imagine unicorns and rainbows in an easier world because we have to live in reality. Everyone does. But I would I would love to see anyway from the oil and gas business better marketing in terms of everything oh. they do bring to this country because I believe it's a lot. And oh, so oh my that, God. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And on that note, I just want to say, David, really thank you. Um, as I said, I should have given you a better introduction because you are definitely a big deal in this arena. And, uh, I really enjoyed this discussion today. Thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Well, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. David, uh, a wealth of information, obviously, Brennan already said that, but I just, you gave me so much to think about. Uh, and I appreciate that because I've got a lot of family that are all about ESG and, and I'm, I'm kind of middle of the road. I'd like to, you know, like Brent said, like we want to see some changes, but what's the reality yeah. of it? And this was a dose well, of reality. Too, so yeah. thank I, you I so much, too. David. I appreciate you thank being you. on the show. And Brent, of course, thank you for bringing him on the show. We wouldn't be here without you as the, uh, the host and the man doing this thing. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review as this actually helps other people find the show. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available.